Good morning, everyone. I am uh, really happy to be able to be with you this morning as a speaker. And uh, in particular, thank Pastor Brown for giving us guys a, a couple weeks every summer to get an opportunity to preach in our worship service. Really thankful this year, because yesterday, as I was making final preparations for preaching today, my wife and my three daughters and my mother-in-law undertook a project at our house, and uh, they switched around the girls' bedrooms. And my wife was so kind and, and had the foresight to say, why don't you go over to my mom's house and you'll have some quiet there in the afternoon and you can, you can do your preparation and you won't have to be disturbed. And I came back and saw all that they did and was really glad I wasn't there. So <laughs> thank you, Pastor Brown, for scheduling me for this week. <laughs> I also am thankful uh, for the opportunity because uh, every opportunity I have to stand before you, before God's people, his church, and share his word, I have a renewed appreciation for the responsibility that our pastor shoulders every week. It is an enormous responsibility uh, to come before God's people as his messenger and open his word to them. And uh, so I thank you for that opportunity, and I hope that you all will uh, remember the, the <clears throat> enormous uh, privilege and responsibility that our pastor has and pray for him in that. And uh, I hope that by the end of the time this morning, you'll also feel uh, the responsibility of that opportunity that the Lord has given to you as well. Uh, in a book called Why Get Up in the Morning, A Guide to the Meaning of Life, a man named Tom Kramlinger tells a story about when he was 14 years old. And uh, he and two friends dared each other to spend the night in a cemetery. And so it's kind of a humorous story that he tells. The night was filled with episodes of them scaring each other half to death. And uh, as dark set in and the sun began to set, quietly sitting, reassuring themselves that that noise that they heard was not a monster about to come and eat them. And uh, as their eyes grew accustomed to the dark, he tells, they grew confident that the ground was not going to open up and swallow them. And so they began to venture out and examine gravestones with their flashlights. And some were really old. 1857 was the date on one. Some were very new. One was three weeks old. Uh, some described the person that was buried there, such as a woman that had been a nurse in the Second World War. And another in particular caught their attention. It was, it was uh, one that also told something about the person who was buried there, more than just the dates on which they were born and died. And this was the inscription. It read, In all things he strove for excellence. And they stared at it for a minute. And uh, Tom was really thinking about this. And uh, he, he asked Phil, one of his friends that were with him, uh, what he thought they would write on his gravestone. And uh, the third friend piped up and said, he wet his pants in Roselawn Cemetery. <laughs> he fell over laughing at his own joke. And uh, Tom said, no, really, I'm serious. Uh, what, do you, what do you think that... Uh, they're going to write on your tombstone. And the friend that he was asking, Ralph, asked, I don't care, as long as it's 100 years from now. And he says in the book uh, how he often remembered that night, and it wasn't just the bravado of the three boys braving it out in the, uh, in the cemetery. He said there was something about the, the impact of realizing the humanity of his hosts, of um, realizing that a cemetery wasn't just a scary place, 
that it uh, wasn't just a resting place. He calls it a place of human significance where each monument bravely proclaims who this person was. And I'm going to read you a a, uh, portion from what he wrote here about this. He says, I still go back to visit cemeteries, especially when I'm riding my motorcycle through the countryside. I like to stop at small churchyards and wander from stone to stone, learning about the meaning of people's lives. I think about what I would have liked written on my own tombstone. One I particularly liked was chiseled on a greenish slate in the old burying ground just off of Lexington Common, where the first skirmish of the American Revolution was fought. It declared of Amos Merritt, who died in 1805 at age 66. Here lies the man who was both kind and free, whose heart was filled with godlike charity. The author Tom here says, I like that. I hope it summed up Amos, old Amos' life, not just the sentiments of a pious stone cutter. The older I get, the more I care about things like that. What are the themes that give meaning to life? What do people live and die for? And in the next section of his book, a few pages later, titled uh, The Search for Meaning, he takes a brief aside and he, he points out um, what he sees as the dual significance of meaning. Under a heading called both secular and religious, he says, please notice that the road of meaning is both secular and religious. If you keep your eyes steady, you will see the secular dimension, the meaning of life in natural terms without reference to God. If on the other hand, you look again with belief in God, you can see the same meaning in its religious dimension. For example, as a gift from God, you can choose whichever dimension you prefer I just invite you to notice that both are there and both are worthy of respect. And I'm going to tell you this morning, I'm going to challenge that assertion that he says that both are significant. We're going to look at what the Bible offers as our purpose, uh, our reason for getting up in the morning. And I'm confident that after you are reminded of what God's word says, Jesus Christ has done for us, that you'll reach this conclusion if meaning is self-manufactured, if it's up to you to figure out and create meaning for your life, then it's as temporary as we are. And ultimately, it's really meaningless. If, on the other hand, our meaning does come from God, as the Bible says, then it predates and will even outlast the universe. If our meaning comes from God, then it is as enduring as he himself is. And so today we're going to do that. We're going to take a look at First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 5. And the gentleman may have already passed out Bibles. If they did, your, your Bible's probably marked there at Second Corinthians chapter 5 if you received one from them. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me this morning to Second Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, I'll set the context for you as you turn. Uh, the text we're going to look at is chapter 5 in the second letter written to this first century church in a city called Corinth. It's written by a man named Paul, an apostle. He was a man that Jesus Christ chose to be a leader in this first century church, and in particular to take the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the good news of God's grace to the non-Jewish peoples who would trust in Christ for salvation. After he wrote his first letter, he found it necessary to make a hurried, painful visit to Corinth and... uh, There were problems there that were yet unresolved, and so he had to visit them in person, and that uh, those problems remained unaddressed. And in the time between that visit and the writing of this letter, the church responded to Paul's rebuke and instruction. 
And a large portion of this letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, is devoted to expressing his joy at their favorable response to his correction. Uh, the, the believers were aware that he suffered a great deal in order to minister to them. But even so, there were some of them who questioned his motives. And in chapters 4 and 5, Paul explains how, how and why he, would, uh, uh, he was willing to persevere. And uh, he describes the situations that he faced and how uh, he faced uh, trials and difficulty in every service opportunity that he found himself in, in every place that he traveled, in every church that he built, uh, the difficulty. And in chapters 4 and 5, he explains how it is that he perseveres against what seems to be fighting a losing battle, uh, something that eventually appeared to, that it would kill him. And in chapter 5, he explains what motivated him, why he, despite knowing what faced him in the next city, why he got up in the morning. And there are five reasons that you have on the insert in your bulletin if you care to follow along. And these five reasons are all found in Christ. And so we'll look at those today. <clears throat> and so let's take a look at the first section there in chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 1 through 8. I'll start reading verse 1. It says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And so in this first section, we see here this, this man, Paul, describing to the people at the church in Corinth what gets him up in the morning. And the first thing he describes is that in Christ, we have a hope beyond the grave. He knows that when he goes into the next city, he's, he's likely going to face persecution, may even involve uh, physical abuse, beating, possibly even death, but he's willing to get up and go do the work that God has for him because he realizes that in Christ he has a hope beyond the grave. What Paul's saying here is directly related to the end of chapter 4, what came before it. There he pointed out that even in the midst of affliction, perplexity, and persecution, there was through divine consolation the hope of glory. Even in the, ple the presence of the ravishes of his mortality, of death, there was, through divine intervention, the operation of life. And he's drawing the contrast there. And that's this twofold theme of life and death and glory even after, afterwards through suffering. Paul now specifies the resources of the divine comfort afforded to the believer who faces the possibility of imminent death. You know, these, these Corinthian believers had heeded his rebuke. They had favorably responded to his challenge to 
quit living for the trivial, sinful things that they had been living for and to spend their life for God. And if they do that, the Bible says that whoever decides to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And in the setting they found themselves in, they very likely would face the same thing Paul faced. And so he tells them that in Christ, they have a hope beyond the grave. And he gives them basically, uh, basically three um, resources that he remembers that remind him of this hope beyond the grave. First is that life is a temporary condition. You know, he's a tent maker by trade. He naturally compares his body to an earthly tent. At any moment, this tent can be disassembled, taken down, and he realizes that this life is a temporary condition. But that possibility didn't daunt him. He was assured that he was a a recipient of the permanent heavenly house that God promised. And he looked forward to the day when what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In verse 4, he says that. And it's, it's very reminiscent of what he wrote in his first letter to them, <clears throat> which I put up on the screen here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54. He says, For the perishable must clothe itself in the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's a reminder that no matter what it looks like as you look at the landscape around you, no matter what you're going through, that if you're living your life according to the values that God tells us we should have in his word, if you're living for what he says is important, then all of that doesn't matter because everything uh, that we do is pointing toward that time. Secondly, he says God's given us a taste and a guarantee of the life that is to come in verse 5. The word that's translated there as deposit is a word commonly used in commercial settings. Uh, It was used to describe a pledge or guarantee of final payment. Uh, Sometimes it was the initial installment of a payment plan. And I thought it was interesting to note that the modern use of the word means engagement ring. So how can the Spirit be God's pledge for the Christian to their inheritance? Well, no doubt it's through the empowering of the Christian's daily recreation. Uh, it is, it is uh, through the reflection on our future uh, resurrection that will be affected by the Holy Spirit. And the transformation, the final transformation that that represents. His present work prefigures and guarantees his future completion of that work. And so he says that God has given us a taste of what he's promising here. Of what it would be like to be finally, to have the full effects of our redemption, to be with him. And it's because his spirit lives in us. And gives us the ability to obey his commands. That in the past we've... We felt the tension that we were commanded to do what God says. And we knew that we couldn't because every time we attempted, we failed. But when you come to Christ and trust him for salvation, he gives you his spirit. And then you can, by the spirit's power, obey him. And we have the promise of what the spirit will do eventually, as happened to Jesus Christ himself, that when he rose from the dead, that we will be resurrected. Thirdly, our destiny is with Christ our Savior. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
and you have placed your confidence in him for forgiveness in your sins of your sins and acceptance by God, then you understand why this is so desirable. So if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, when I say that our destiny is with Christ our Savior, that's meaningful to you. You've experienced this feeling. Everybody's experienced this. The anticipating uh, of something that you're really longing for, that thing you have tickets for, and you just can't believe you're going to be able to go. Uh, that special person that you've been separated from, and you just can't wait to be reunited with them. You've been apart for weeks, for days, and you get to see them again. If your children, children have ever been away for an extended period of time, the anticipation of knowing you're gonna, they're going to be arriving back home again soon, and you just can't wait for their return. And that's what he's talking about here. Paul has good reasons to remain here doing the work that God's given him, but he can hardly wait to be with Jesus. The same man who wrote this letter uh, to the church at Corinth wrote the following words to another church. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand what he's talking about here, that the one who saved you, the one who gave his life for you, one day you'll be with, and there's an anticipation that comes with it, that should come with that. If you've never run to Jesus for salvation, you may not understand uh, such anticipation. Hopefully it'll become apparent as we continue to look at the rest of the text. Let's look at the next section in 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 9. We read, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We're, uh, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What Paul's talking about here is that, secondly, not only do we have hope beyond the grave, but we have accountability beyond ourselves. We have accountability beyond ourselves. Have you ever heard somebody talking about uh, the decision to do something right versus doing what's wrong, and they're talking themselves into it, kind of, and they say something like, uh, you know, I have to wake up and look at myself in the mirror every morning probably even said that yourself before. And I don't mean to be harsh when I say this, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's subtle, and it might be easy to miss, but the problem with that way of thinking is that it's making us our own ultimate standard. Uh, you know, who says that I get to be the person who decides what is right or wrong for me to do? Is that, a, is that an appropriate standard for me to have? Is that something and a rule that everybody can operate by? You know, is, would it have been okay for a man like Osama bin Laden to say, as long as I feel good about it, I can do it? 
it only takes a little bit of thinking to realize that that's that that doesn't make sense, that we can't be our own ultimate standard um, of righteousness. And that's the point that's being made here. We can't settle for living a life that's pleasing to us. We can't, we're not the ones who, whose values determine what's right and wrong. God is. Jesus is the judge before whom we will stand one day. And so we make it our goal to please him. That's what Paul's talking about. He makes it his goal to please Jesus. You know, it's nice if you can look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. It's a a good thing to uh, not carry around guilt in a a, uh, burdened conscience. But that's not the point. We're here to aspire to something much greater. We're here. We stand before our creator one day. We want to hear his, that he is pleased with how we use the life that he gave us. That's what Paul's talking about here. We want to hear that he is pleased with how we used what he entrusted to us. And I want to make an important note here. You know, if you look at the the passage uh, in verses 9 and 10, he talks about judgment, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I just want to point out here uh, what this is not saying, what's not meant in verse 10 when you read about judgment and receiving what is due based on your works. Uh, What it certainly does not mean is that you are assigned your eternal destiny based on your works. That's what it doesn't mean. And you only need to look a few verses later and read about Jesus' substitutionary death in our place and what that did for us to realize that. Um, This is describing a time when we will meet Jesus Christ and we'll hear his evaluation of how we use the gifts that he gave us. And whatever this judgment seat of Christ is, the Bible in this very letter makes very clear that your acceptance with God, that your acceptance before God is solely through the merits of Jesus Christ who bore our punishment for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. That's what he says in verse 21. So what Paul's describing here is what he refers to in his first letter to this same church in chapter 3 when he says that if any man builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So what he's talking about here is the fact that uh, we know we're going to meet the one who gives us this hope beyond the grave. You and I realize that we're going to meet this person one day, and that motivates us because we want to please him. He's the, one, he's the one who gave us this hope beyond the grave. He's the reason that my life is not uh, summarized in just what I, can, what I see here and now and what I'm able to accomplish, how big my bank account is, how nice my house is, what kind of car I drive, uh, whether or not my children are model citizens, that, that is not what I'm living for. What I'm living for and what everything else should flow out of is that one day I'll stand before him and I want him to be pleased because he's the one who gave me the life I lived. <clears throat> Knowing that he'll evaluate every one of us on how we used what he gave us motivates us also to spread the good news. Paul says that in the next verse, that in verse 11, 
Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. So he was motivated to go from town to town, from church to church, and to share the good news that Jesus Christ died to do for you what you could not do for yourself, to open up a way to God. The fear of the Lord that he's talking about here isn't uh, just personal piety or necessarily even the terror of the omnipotent. But what he's talking about is a reverential awe that he had for Christ as his divine assessor and future judge. And because he was aware of this personal accountability, he strove to persuade men of the truths of the gospel and the truth concerning himself he talks about in the next verses. And we won't take time to look at that uh, as it's a part of the bigger message of the book uh, in his defense of his ministry. But because he realized that one day he'll stand before God, he took his job seriously that he was a minister of the good news and that the credibility of that message was paramount. And so he, he took it very seriously. The third item there, the third reason Paul lists that he gets up in the morning is because Christ paid a debt beyond our means. We see in verses 14 through 15. He says in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. If we... <clears throat> because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So you see the transaction that he's depicting here, that we are all justly condemned before God. You know, you and I come into this world as a sinner. We're born as an enemy of God. And the transaction that took place when Jesus Christ died in my place, when I put my dependence on his payment of my sin instead of my ability to try to earn my way into God's favor, when I do that, what's happening here is Jesus Christ's perfect life is being credited to my account. And he has taken on the debt that I could not pay. I did not have my res the resources in the bank to pay the debt I owed to God. But he did, and he paid it all, just like the song says, Jesus paid it all. And realizing that I'm living on borrowed time removes any misconception about the cost of living for Christ, because Christ's love compels us. It compels us. That rescued from death, we are compelled by his love to live for him. It's common for those who've experienced a brush with their mortality to find themselves reflecting on the meaning of life, wondering, why am I still here? Uh, there, there must be some purpose to my life. What value has my life to this point had? And um, I think that it's very easy for us to, um, to forget, because we hear the message so often, of the amazing nature of what the love Christ demonstrated for us has. Um, I'm reminded of the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. It's familiar to many of you. And uh, in the first verse, the hymn writer, uh, each chorus, by the way, repeats, Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, How great thou art, how great thou art. And in the first verse, the hymn writer contemplates the greatness of God in creation. He talks uh, about God uh, standing before God in awesome wonder, considering the worlds that his hands have made, seeing the stars, hearing the thunder, his power throughout the universe displayed. And in verse 2, he contrasts this, and it's so stark. 
as the writer recognizes the greatness of God in the sacrifice of his son for us. He says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled to take away my sin. I think it really is possible for us to have heard this message so many times that the wonder is lost on us. And if we step back regularly and look at what Christ has done for us with fresh eyes, that it motivates us, that it will compel us as it should. And because of that, I'm going to do something that's a little unusual. I'm going to show you a short video as a part of the message. Um, I hesitated to show it because it's a little longer than I would normally show. It's, it's about five minutes long. Um, but some of you may have seen it before. We've shown it before a couple years ago at a baptism. But I think that as you watch, consider how compelling that we find, even on a human level, sacrificial love when we see it demonstrated. And then let's think of the analogy of what Christ has done for us. The woman lost in her addiction, the people on the train unaware of the sacrifice made on their behalf, in anguish, the father knowing what he's lost, seeing the people go by without a care. And I think it, it impresses us with what it would be like to make an enormous sacrifice like that. And we get a little taste, just a little taste, of what's been done for us when God the Father gave his Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ, the God who spoke the universe into existence, every star, every galaxy, our entire planet, and every soul on it, voluntarily died in my place, taking God's wrath on himself, making payment for sin on our behalf, the lonely, the angry, the selfish, the hurting, the addicted, the unworthy. Christ's love compels us. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's vital to understand, if we want to properly understand what motivates the Christian Because it would be easy to miss the fact when we read about judgment just before this that it is our affection for him that motivates us to serve him. We know that we will stand before him one day and that he will evaluate how we use the lives that he gave us. But it's not the fear of judgment that motivates us. It's our love for the judge and all that he's done for us that we wouldn't be able to stand there if it were not for his great sacrifice Nothing else besides living for him makes sense, considering his love for us demonstrated by his death in our place. His love compels us. If we were sentenced to death and the only reason we live is because he took our place, then what sense does it make to do anything besides living in light of the restored sense of purpose that he's given us? So Christ has given us hope beyond the grave. And in him we do have accountability and ourselves. He's paid a debt beyond our means. We could not pay that debt, and he paid it for us. But fourthly, in Christ, we're given an unprecedented 
where we experience an unprecedented transformation. Turning to Christ and being rescued initiates a transformation from death to life, the Bible says here in verses 16 and 17. He says, so now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the old has passed away. We are a new creation, the Bible tells us. This transformation radically changed the way Paul looked at life, the man who wrote this letter. Before it, he judged people on a fairly superficial basis. He was a Jew and proud of it. He had all the qualifications. He was an Israelite of Israelites. But now he simply saw believers in Christ or non-believers in Christ, regardless of their national heritage. His perspective on who Jesus was had changed as well. Before he saw him as an imposter who claimed to be the promised one of Israel, the Messiah. But then one day he met him. He was traveling along the road and Jesus Christ, who had resurrected and ascended to be with the Father, stopped to meet with Paul on this road. And he met him face to face and learned who, who Jesus really was, that he really was who he claimed to be, the Messiah of Israel. And Paul recognized Jesus for who he was now. He looked at people around him differently. He didn't see people who were uh, rich or poor, people who were cultured or uncultured, people who were black, people who were white, people who were tan, people who were Jews, people who were Gentiles. He didn't see that. He saw people who needed a Savior, and they had either received that Savior already or they had not. And he saw the Savior differently. He, he realized that Jesus was not an imposter, but that he was the one who claimed who, who was who he claimed to be. God come as man in, the hum, in human flesh and raised from the dead and ascended on high. And that's who he served now. He recognized him as Savior and Lord. And that changed Paul's perspective. It was a result of the change that God made in him. The old Paul was gone. The new Paul was here. And that's what it says in, in the next verse, that this is from God. Turning to Christ and being rescued initiates a transformation that only God could, could make. It's a transformation from enmity to intimacy. You realize we're, we're born as enemies of God. We're born as sinners. And this is a change that only can happen by God's grace. We're born uh, distant from God, separated from him because of our sin. But through Christ's death in our place, God reconciles us to him. We were enemies. We're here away from God, and we're separated from him and happy to be so. We don't want to be, we don't want to be brought to him because that's judgment. <clears throat> but by God's grace, he sought us, and he, he reconciles us. We're no longer separated. We're brought into his family from enmity to intimacy. <clears throat> There's something between us and God that only God could fix. Sometimes when, when a man and woman who are married file for divorce, they state as their reasons. They describe it as unreconcilable differences. They can't work it out. And that's what it appeared to be from our point of view between us and God. And that's why we didn't want to be before God in our natural state. 
We don't seek after God. The, the same author tells us in a letter that he wrote to a church in Rome. He says that no one seeks after God. We don't want God because it's judgment. But these differences are not irreconcilable because God reconciled them through Jesus Christ. He says, don't, don't lie and we lie. He says, love me with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself and we love ourselves. We don't measure up. But on the basis of Jesus' payment for our sins on the cross, our relationship with God's restored. We were enemies, but now because of Jesus, we're in his family. And that should amaze us. That should amaze us. But wait, it gets better. As if that were not enough, back in our passage in 2 Corinthians 15, in verse 19, after being told that we've been reconciled to God, and I'm happy to stop there, I'm reconciled to God, no longer condemned, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it gets better still, he says in verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling himself, the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And then he says this, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Wow. Not only do we get to be restored into a relationship with our God, we get to work for him. We get to take this good news. That's why it's called good news. There was really bad news to start with. We were separated from God, deserving of eternal condemnation. And the good news that Jesus Christ came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves not only comes to us to change our situation, but we get entrusted with this message. We have an unbelievable opportunity, number five. Unbelievable opportunity that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, in verse 20, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation and he's given us the message of reconciliation. You and I have the opportunity to take the simplicity of what saved us, that we realize that we're a sinner. We can't fix the problem ourselves that's between us and God, that only God could do it, and he did by sending his son. We have the opportunity before us to take that message to the world around us that we can, we can spend our time that God's entrusted us with, the resources God's entrusted us with, this body that God has placed us in, that all of it, that we can use it in this ministry of reconciliation, taking the message that you can be reconciled to God, to the world around you. You can do that where you work. You can do that in your neighborhood. I spoke in the beginning uh, of my time standing up here before you, that I realize every time I get up here the incredible responsibility that comes with the opportunity of preaching on a Sunday morning in that it, it renews my, uh, my burden to pray for my pastor as he does that week after week. What I want you to do is think about that opportunity and the responsibility that comes with it for you and I day after day because God has made us ministers of reconciliation. The world around you is at enmity with God and you have the message 
that they can have intimacy with God. They can know this God that they're afraid of, that they don't want to have anything to do of, with, and they can have it because God did it all for them. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. And it's summed up in the, the last verse there, in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You'll notice at the bottom of today's outline the take-home truth. Real meaning in life comes only from our connection to Jesus Christ, the source of our life. Every substitute sense of meaning that you and I come up with is just a counterfeit. You know, we may try to find it in our occupation, in our career. We may try to find it in our family. Many of us try to find it in our hobbies and recreation. We may find it in a person. We may search for meaning in any number of places. The author of the book that I quoted from in, in my uh, opening introduction uh, recommends all kinds of ways you can search for meaning. But I propose to you this morning that the place you find meaning is in Christ. And that's what Paul's telling us this morning, that real meaning in life comes only from our connection to Jesus Christ. It is the only thing that will not eventually lose its appeal and cease to satisfy us. Because in Christ, we have hope beyond the grave. We have accountability beyond ourselves because he paid a debt beyond our means. And we're given an unprecedented transformation. And before you and I today, friends, is an unbelievable opportunity. And I pray that you'll take advantage of it as you go live for him this week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to be your ambassadors, that as though you yourself were standing before our neighbors and before our coworkers and before our family, saying, be reconciled to God. We get to do that. We get to deliver the message. And I thank you, Lord, for that privilege. And Lord, I pray for your help with that great responsibility that we would, that we would uh, take it seriously, that we would use everything you've put at our disposal for that purpose. And it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.